This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hello everyone, this is Lynn McPherson. I'm the program director of the online Master of Science, Graduate Certificates and PhD in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. We are super duper excited about our program. So as part of that effort, we are recording a series of podcasts on founders, leaders and futurists in palliative care. And helping me with this whole thing is my good buddy, Connie Dolan, Putin's advanced practice nurse who really helped shape the role of advanced practice nurses in particular, but really has had a tremendous influence on the whole field of palliative care and its evolution. And Connie teaches in the first course in the master's program. She was the first person I called. And then when we are more very close to the final approval of this PhD, she was the first person I called here as well. So she will be co-teaching the first course on understanding palliative care and building blocks for the future. And of course, on leadership in the program. So she's helping me with all of these podcasts. And we're very excited about our guest for this episode, Dr. Mallory Davis, who is the head of palliative care at for all of Geisinger. Welcome, Dr. Davis. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me on. We're super excited you're here. And I've known you for many years, mostly um, from the, well, where I met Dr. Davis is I was attending a palliative care program. I don't even remember. Oh, I think it was one of the academy meetings, AHBM. And I think it was a pre-conference that Dr. Davis was doing with Dr. Declan Walsh. And they were talking about where Dr. Davis worked at the time, Cleveland Clinic, their approach to opioid dosing in a variety of circumstances, acute pain, chronic pain, conversions, and so forth. And... Uh, I was beside myself because I was in the throes of writing the first edition of my book on um, opioid conversion calculations. And I know that I monopolized Dr. Davis during every break. I was a stalker. I'm very proud of that. And uh, it's been the start of a beautiful friendship. I appreciate you so much. So Dr. Davis, why don't you tell us, I know you trained as an oncologist and I know you phoned the wife one day and said, guess what? I'm gonna jump on this new pony called palliative care. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, um, I finished my um, hematology oncology training at the Mayo Clinic in, in uh, 1982. Um, and I had about 17 years as an oncologist hematologist and realized that when I was managing patients with cancer, they had symptoms that I couldn't handle that I was really not trained to uh, to manage, and so I was looking for resources, um, you know, teaching, uh, and palliative care in the United States, there were no uh, accredited fellowships. So I contacted Robert Twycross, and he said in 1996, come over, but come over for two weeks and see if you'll like it, see if you'll like it. And uh, so I came over and rounded with him, and I was floored by what they could do uh, pharmacologically, symptom-wise, and psychosocially with patients without giving chemotherapy and getting patients feeling better um, 
so uh, when I came back to the United States, I was really quite changed. And so I elected to go back in 1997 and spent the summer uh, practicing with Robert Twycross. Um, and that was quite an experience. Uh, I don't know if you, um, probably not very many people have rounded with Robert Twycross or are still around that have rounded with him, but he was meticulous. He was meticulous pharmacologically. I, and there were several components to that that he was um, that he was really very gifted in. Number one is managing symptoms with the, the fewest number of doses per day, because that had something to do with compliance. So if you could give sustained release morphine twice a day, it's better than every four hours, so to speak. So we would go over the medical lists of patients each day. Number two is that if you made a suggestion, he would take it, but you needed the data to know that, to be able to convince him. It wasn't just an opinion. So you had to have chapter and verse to be able to influence how he was thinking. He had an inquisitive mind. He was uh, uh, not only brilliant, but willing to learn, willing to learn from anyone, as long as you could present the data to him um, that would, uh, convince him that, that that's a, a proper approach to, to managing those particular patients. And so we would go over the list of medications every morning. We would sit down in rounds and go over that. And uh, the other is to extract things that were not needed. And that was really the beginning influence of how to care on me was to see how he managed patients. The pharmacology was extremely important, but also the bedside uh, approach in rounding. Uh, you sat at the bedside or you kneeled at the bedside. You never really stood over a patient and that was there. And so you, you rounded on a, a regular basis for it. And it was a comprehensive service in the sense that not only did they have an inpatient unit, but they also had a community-based program with the McMillian nurses, but they also had daycare, something that we don't have and I would often round in the daycare area where you, uh, patients would be dropped off. They could socialize and things like that. They would la look at their medications. If they needed transfusions, they could get transfusions there. So there were a lot of things that could be done in his center, which was really a relatively comprehensive center. So when I came back to the United States, um, I was really enthralled with the pharmacological management. And one of the first things that I faced was a woman who had ovarian cancer and had a bowel obstruction and she did not want anything done. And she wasn't a surgical candidate. She didn't want any more chemotherapy, but she wanted symptoms to be managed. And what we were doing in Oxford was to use hysacine, butobromide, morphine, and haloperidol. And you could mix them together as a single infusion and give it to patients um, as, uh, as a syringe driver. And you could send them on their way and control their symptoms. The um, interesting thing is that in conversing with him and looking and with, a, with actually a pharmacist, um, Ann Firsty, we found that glycopyrrolate was also a quaternary scopolamine derivative. Uh, so it wouldn't cross the CNS. It was as effective as hysacine butobromide. So we mixed this in with uh, morphine and haloperidol, and we found a hospice that was willing to take it as a mixed in a single infusion. 
and she went home and comfortably died um, about two weeks later. Her husband came back and was extremely grateful because they could um, get closure, she could be around her friends and things like that. But as I was discharging this patient, um, my intern came up to me and said, well, you haven't done anything for this patient. And what that intern meant was that I had not treated her cancer nor taken her to surgery. So it was, it was really an eye-opening experience. 1999, there was a position opened at the, at the Cleveland Clinic and it was um, uh, Cicely Saunders' third research fellow, Declan Walsh, who had been at the Cleveland Clinic since uh, 1989 that uh, invited me to come up. I went up several times and uh, uh, eventually moved there in 1999. And I did both oncology and palliative medicine. And that was actually quite freeing because I found that as an oncologist, having palliative care skills and growing palliative care skills, I didn't really need to treat someone with chemotherapy. I had, I had a lot more tools in my toolbox. So uh, um, I eventually elected to do advanced lung cancer because it was both a great palliative um, group of patients to deal with, but also uh, there was chemotherapy that could be used. So it was a very freeing experience. And eventually um, I elected to do full-time palliative care uh, before leaving there. Uh, and while I was at the Cleveland Clinic, we got interested in the structure of palliative care and its finances. And we had the ability to do some of that work while we were there. And then we had some real interest because there's a, a basic science uh, research there. They, we got really interested in fatigue. So we did this translational, translational work looking at cancer-related fatigue, looking at EEGs, EMGs, trans, um, transcranial magnetic resonance and things like that. Um, and we were able to find that, for instance, a cancer-related fatigue was a central phenomena, just like anorexia is a central phenomena. It's really a central phenomena that occurs uh, with that. And I, I also led the fellowship for about eight years uh, and had the uh, opportunity of training and doing qualitative research with the fellows. But it was a great environment, not only for practice, but also learning research skills under uh, a fairly well-known palliative care researcher, uh, Declan Walsh. So I, uh, my exposure and the reason why I have such an interest in pharmacology is my initial exposure was with the first research fellow of, of Cicely Saunders, Robert Twycross, and the third research fellow, um, Declan Walsh, both of them very good pharmacologists, very thoughtful individuals. So how did Dr. Gav fit into all this? Dr. Gabriel Pasternak? Oh, Gav. Gav, um, while I was at the Cleveland Clinic, I, I, we, Declan set me off to look at opioids. And so hence the, the two books, Opioids and Cancer Pain, that we published in uh, 2009, and then uh, again, updated it, I think, in 2010, 2011. It actually got an award from the British Medical Association. Um, as a book in oncology, but I worked with um, uh, Paul, um, 
uh, Glare, um, Janet Hardy, um, and we <clears throat> we did the book twice. Um, but he, he set me off an interest in that. And part of that interest was looking at the basic pharmacology and the initial chapters that were done were through GAB. So I invited him to do that. And I was, because I knew what a, what a consummate researcher and what a pioneer he was. And he said, yes, but I had to write it. And then he would, he would you know, so uh, he would then, help edit it and things like that. Mm -hmm. So he was really a very good mentor in that sense. You got into his mind and he was able to talk to you. And then we invited him to speak and we've spent time together. And then we went to uh, Japan to teach together, but he became more of a, a, not only a mentor, but also a friend, uh, a deeply respected friend, but he was very humble and uh, despite his roots and all the things that he had discovered. So he, he became a mentor at a distance, so to speak. And uh, we actually did a publication in 2019, just before his death actually, uh, on the buprenorphine, which had been an interest um, it became an interest in 2005 when I did my first publication on it. I thought this was a very interesting drug. Um, and we did a series of other publications like 12 Reasons Why You Would Use Buprenorphine. And one of the interesting things about this, and I'll always remember this, is that Perry Fine came up to me and uh, after presenting one of these things at the HPM or presenting it at some lecture, and he said, Mel, don't you think that it should be a first-line drug in hospice because of its safety? So that was, you know, that was kind of an interesting thing um, with it. So, um, and we actually have a paper that's going to be published on the pragmatic use of, of buprenorphine that will be in uh, current treatment and uh, options in oncology that will be coming out probably in the next several months. So uh, that has been that's been a personal interest um, with it. But I think um, the other thing that's really been confirming that that's a, an opioid that we really should consider is the um, the Department of Health and Human Services is 2019 guidelines suggested considering this buprenorphine prior to using potent opioids. So I think that there's this evolving thing of looking at opioids in regards to safety, um, not only about efficacy. So I, I, I think we're gonna be seeing this kind of evolving thing, particularly in light of the uh, opioid epidemic. Hmm. So the fact that you did not respond to my email last week saying you and I should write a paper on how to convert off of buprenorphine, is that more reflective of you're very busy or you think everybody and their mother should be on buprenorphine? No, I, I, I think you're right. I just haven't been able to respond to you. But <laughs> I think um, the paper that, that's in current uh, treatment and um, in options in oncology will come out with that actually. Okay, good. So at least some, some help in that regard. There aren't a lot of papers that have moved from buprenorphine into other opioids. Right. Uh, I think that 
medical practice today is not comfortable with the idea of buprenorphine for pain management, certainly for substance abuse recovery. But people don't quite know what to do with it. And I think insurance companies are not familiar with that idea either. Tana, you're certainly as a prescriber. Uh, I know when we get a patient on hospice on buprenorphine, the first question is, how do I get them off of this? Yeah. You know, it's the same thing we faced in the early 2000s when methadone was coming back as an analgesic. It right. got a lot of pushback. You've got a lot of pushback, but I think you just have to stay the course. The evidence is what the evidence is, mm -hmm. you know, that it is a good analgesic. It's not, you know, I don't think that there's, you know, the perfect analgesic. And maybe that will evolve with some of the basic science that is now looking at six transmembrane receptor agonists for opioids, you know. Um, so there may be this evolving thing, theme that, that will be occurring. But I think it's a drug that people should really consider because it is a safe drug. It, it allows you leeway that you don't have with other potent opioids and the craving is less, you know, so it blocks, it blocks craving. Uh, so there's a, there is a safety mechanism with it. But people are afraid of the affinity issue and they can never remember, should I not add bupe to morphine or should I not add morphine to bupe? So I think we've got some work still to do there. Yeah, I think in low doses, for instance, low doses of buprenorphine, there's actually synergy with hydromorphone, morphine. And what I'm talking are things like Valbuca or um, Butrans. Butrans or things like that. Uh, once you get up to 12 or 16 milligrams, probably when you get to 16, it's really difficult to get a response, analgesic response. And so you end up having to divide doses or coming down on the buprenorphine to be able to get your potent opioid. If you're dealing with, with acute pain, such as in the perioperative setting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Connie, before I take a breath and plow on further, anything you want to hop in with yet? I mean, no, I think this is just, so this is such a learning experience for our students to kind of think about this evolution of um, the science from the get-go about medications. And I think um, just this evolution still that <clears throat> science keeps emerging and how do we bring everybody up? Um, because I'm, you know, I was listening to the buprenorphine, right? And it's, it's this interesting part about when something's new and you don't have a pharmacist in your side pocket, like having Lynn with you all the time, you know, how do you feel comfortable writing this? Um, because if you're at a community hospital where I am, you're supposed to be the expert. And so, you know, how do we use this expertise to move it forward? And then the second part I would say is when, again, when you're at a community hospital and you have pharmacists who um, you kind of say, could you look at the literature and they'll look at their literature, but not at the palliative care literature. And then you really have a hard time because um, the discussion can go places, but then when you go into the community. So it's just interesting about what the science is and then how does it get spread out and then the comfort level. And I think the other part with buprenorphine um, that I would just say, even as a prescriber is this whole I don't want to say confusion, but you know, there's been this guidelines of you needed to have this education and get a waiver. And then during COVID they're not. And then just being clear, like, okay, what are the guidelines? Who is supposed to be prescribing it? Yes, it's a really great armamentarium and palliative care, but how do we get that knowledge out? So I think you've just articulated a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Connie, nice. Go ahead. I, I think 
one of the probably the most important things that I've learned um, over the decades that I've been in palliative medicine is that you bring things from the outside in. So bring the basic science. The basic science helps you. And then secondly, patience. When your back is against the wall, you become creative. And if you have a knowledge of the basic science, in other words, the things that Gav had brought forward have really clinical utility that may be really very helpful in changing the field, bringing it about, changing, bringing uh, new changes to the field, important changes to the field. So I think the part of the, yes, we need to read within the field, but if you read within the field, you'll never bring anything new into the field. You need to read things outside of the field. You need to read literature that, that doesn't have a direct bearing on palliative care. And oftentimes we get locked in to uh, reading our own literature and then we don't really grow. So Tommy and I had the opportunity to speak briefly with Dr. Robert Twycross this morning. And I started off by showing him, this is the first book that I ever bought in palliative care, his book. And my observation in talking to him and now talking to you is we've come a long way from his smaller book called Oral Morphine is a Good Thing. to now we're talking about buprenorphine. Crazy, huh? So here's my thought. People accuse me of not sleeping. But you know what? I think I'm a slacker compared to you. You are absolutely, you're, you're pumping out, like you'll email me one day with something saying, you know, somebody ought to write a letter on this. And I'm like, yeah, somebody ought to. And then you write it the next day with 47 references. And then the next day it's accepted. And then the next day it's available online. That happened last week where you crushed my dreams by publishing that methadone may not be the NMD receptor antagonist we think it is, especially at low doses. Talk to me about that. I'll cry yeah. quietly while you talk, discuss it. So um, as I talked about bringing the basic science literature into the, you know, the everyday practice. So when a basic scientist says that methadone has a high affinity for um, the NMDA receptor. He's talking about micromolar. Now, you know, not very many people know about how do, do I convert micromolar into nanograms per milliliter, and does that really get to the receptor site? That's really a good question. So, for instance, a uh, one micromolar of methadone is about 309, 309 nanograms per milliliter of methadone. Now, you know, putting, get, trying to get that kind of serum level in someone, you're gonna put them to sleep, basically. You may be able to reach that in patients on high doses of, um, uh, high doses of uh, maintenance methadone over a period of time, but you're talking about Mary Crete's levels of 160 milligrams of methadone a day to be able to be able to bind, get enough methadone into the CNS to bind where that the receptor is. Um, at the same time, hidden in the literature with methadone is that is exquisite reuptake inhibitor of serotonin. At, at sub nanogram levels. 
you know, so, and that's seen in multiple animal levels or animal studies, basic science studies. And you know, you can get those kind of levels into the brain. So, um, and what we found in looking and reviewing the literature, this is basic science and clinical work, is that actually methadone is like tramadol. It's not an NMDA inhibitor, it's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And that's why you get the serotonin syndrome with it, multiple study, multiple case reports of it. Um, but it may be why it works in, um, in neuropathic pain. It has nothing to do with NMDA. Now yeah. you're just talking dirty, comparing my girl methadone with tramadol. Yeah. That's just plain wrong. So what is the equivalent potency of methadone as a serotonin reuptake inhibitor relative to tramadol or to amitriptyline, for example? It's close. It's close. I haven't looked at them directly. There is one paper by who is it? I'm not recalling right now, who actually did in animal models, looked at tramadol, uh, levorphanol, and methadone, and found that they actually had the same, same affinities, except for the mu receptor, obviously, tramadol was really very, very weak. Okay. Uh, so, but I, I think that that makes all the sense in the world uh, okay. with it. So, uh, that was what the the paper was about. The most recent thing is we're doing the update on managing bowel obstruction for um, in patients, you know, with malignancies, and we're looking at the pharmacological management. Mm -hmm. And as you know, there's one trial by Dave Currow and company from Australia that looked at ranitidine and ranitidine. Um, they had, everyone got ranitidine and they got steroids and antiemetics. And then they randomized people to octreotide and dextamet or um, placebo. Mm -hmm. So, but everyone was on ranitidine. Well, I went back to look at the basic science literature in the 90s and early 2000s and ranitidine increases somatostatin levels by releasing it from the gastric mucosa. So when you give ranitidine, and it's unique, you don't see it with famotidine. So when you give ranitidine, you're actually giving somatostatin to someone. Mm -hmm. So the reason why that trial didn't show a benefit to octreotide is they were already giving octreotide when they were giving ranitidine. So it, it's, one of the reasons why that trial is negative, we've never been able to explain that. So that trial with Dr. Caro was IV ranitidine, which we do not have here. We don't. Would you expect the same with oral ranitidine here? You know, that's an interesting question. And I don't know if I could, can answer that. Certainly if it gets to the gastric mucosa, um, it will increase somatostatin levels. It does it through calcitonin gene-related peptide. It releases that and that causes an increase in, in, in somatostatin levels. And that's been seen both in humans and in animals. So it's not just an isolated study. There are about five or six studies that have demonstrated that ranitidine you, uh, uniquely, not famotidine, not cimetidine, really uh, increases somatostatin levels. Yeah. Now, what does, that, what does that mean though in hospice? So if someone's on octreotide and they're able to take things in, 
maybe you can put them on high dose ranitidine, oral ranitidine, like 400 milligrams twice daily. Mm -hmm. And they can go home and you'll maintain the octreotide increase. And I've done that. So I've stopped the octreotide and sent them home on ranitidine. So how would you investigate that? Is it a, a simple matter of the bioavailability of ranitidine or do you have to look at serum levels or peak levels or area to the curve? Or is it looking at a gastric mucosa tissue level? It may be a gastric mucosal tissue level. That's what my sense is, is that ranitidine causes calcitonin gene-related peptide to increase and then somatostatin comes out. So it may be that, that oral will work. The reason why they gave it as a subcutaneous continuous infusion was people had nausea and vomiting. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to get it under control, maybe you can stop the octreotide and put them on oral ranitidine and send them on their way. Wouldn't that be neat? But that's bringing the basic science into potential therapeutic approach in something that's very pragmatic mm -hmm. because hospices can't afford they can't afford octreotide, but they can afford ranitidine. Absolutely. So I know how I can make you cry like a little girl within 15 seconds. If I say, this patient with dementia has delirium, let's give him Haldol. Look, there he goes, Connie. <laughs> so what's, what's the deal you there? You know, I don't use Haldol anymore for uh, delirium. I only use it for nausea. Uh, I, I really believe the agar study. I personally believe it. Now, one randomized trial does not make a summer, you know, and um, a, a negative randomized trial should be repeated. Now, the difficulty in repeating it is that people with, with um, haloperidol actually had reduced survival. So people are gonna be reluctant to re repeat a negative study. At the same time, when you look at all the systematic reviews of haloperidol and delirium, they're negative. All of the recent ones are negative. There's a preponderance of evidence that it's an ineffective agent in treating uh, delirium. So I buy the data. I don't use it. Um, so we've been using valproate. Now, the evidence for valproate is still observational studies. So it's not, there isn't a randomized trial, um, you know, looking at it versus placebo. I still think you can do a placebo trial based upon the agar trial because you had higher placebo responses than you did with the, the um, haloperidol. So, um, I, I think it needs to be subject to a randomized trial, but I, I don't use I don't use it anymore for delirium. Mm. It's caused quite a stir. I, I do know that for sure. One well, I would just let me just ask one thing, yeah. Lynn. I mean, and I think the challenge, as you both know, so from the clinician perspective, is so delirium, as long as I have been in practice, has been a challenge. You know, I can remember in the days when we were in the hospice part, you know, we were giving everybody Thorazine, which probably just zonked them. Um, 
you know, so then we sort of started to develop this. I think part of the, one of the challenges is that delirium makes us feel help, helpless, right? That there's something that we can't figure it out or it's something in the disease process that we're not gonna be able to fix. I think the other part that causes consternation is that as you both know, what you can do in an academic medical center sometimes has more flexibility. What I really worry about, Lynn, is what you talked about, is that you know when we're in the long-term care setting and we're trying to take care of these geriatric patients who may have a little bit of dementia underlying or not, they are already so restrictive in the medicines that we can use because um, even in my own experience, um, trying to get my mother on an antidepressant, they felt like it was chemical restraint, right? That was the attitude. So you know, how do we help think um, and support clinicians, hospice and palliative across settings because where I really worry about it, and I think particularly with COVID, um, is these long-term care facilities that don't have the support. They don't have you know, a Lynn McPherson pharmacist in their back pocket who can help them think through. And so then the patient is left in this horrible state. The staff is terrified and it's just a bad outcome. Yeah, it's a conundrum, it really is. So one last pharmacology conversation. Talk to me about PEA. What the heck's that? Midlal ethanolamide is a nutraceutical, uh, medicinal nutraceutical that's available. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It is a ethanolamide, but it's not an arachnidonic ethanolamide. And hence, it doesn't, it doesn't directly bind to the classical cannabinoid receptors. It's a PPAR uh, um, alpha agent. Um, it works on the, cap the capsation type of receptor or the channel. And it also may affect uh, 5-HT1A and um, the GPR55. Now, these, you know, that's all gar um, gargled, so to speak, but it's those kind of receptors have a lot to do with pain and modulation of pain. So one of the, the unique things about these agents is they're modulatory. They are promiscuous in the sense of affecting multiple channels or so, but they are also, um, they are also modulators of, um, it's like valproate is more of a modulator than attacking a single receptor. It modulates levels that occur in that. But it's a very safe agent. It's something that you normally produce when you have pain. It increases in inflammation. So in people with inflammatory disorders, it will be increased in those particular tissues. It works in neuropathic pain. There have been multiple, multiple studies. In fact, two meta-analysis that have been published that have shown that it actually works quite well in pain, in various pain syndromes, such as entrapment neuropathies, um, chemotherapy-induced neuropathies, though there are no randomized trials in that setting. Um, and it has an antidepressant effect because it modulates a neuroinflammation. So it's actually worked in Parkinson's disease, and there is an interest, a large interest, among basic science researchers in looking at it in Alzheimer's um, disease. So it's an agent that I think has a lot of promise. And the, the really nice thing about pamidolol ethanolamide is it has no side effects. Mm. It has less side effects than placebo. So um, 
it's a low risk agent to use. We use it in people with neuropathic pain. So we have several people with chemotherapy induced neuropathies who really have responded nicely to that without having the side effects, for instance, of duloxetine or gabapentin or things like that. I have a woman who's had a post-mastectomy pain, pretty severe. She says that it's a godsend to her. It's really controlled her post-mastectomy pain. So it's a nice adjuvant to use in randomized trials, interesting enough, recently published within the last year, year or two, it's worked in osteoarthritis. Uh, so in people that you're afraid of, giving them an NSAID for whatever reason, bleeding or renal function, it's, it's actually an agent that one could consider. And it, it's synergistic with Tylenol. It's synergistic with some of the adjuvants. It's certainly synergistic with several opioids as an adjuvant. So at, either as a single agent or an adjuvant, it's a good drug to use. And so it's very- We're gonna do one clinical trial in patients with an advanced illness. What, would, what indication would you evaluate it for? Me? Yeah. What, what I, I, would, I, would, I would target neuropathic pain. I, I, that would be, I think, the low-lying fruit. Mm -hmm. We don't have very many good agents for it. Mm -hmm. And I would look at it as a single agent or as an add-on. So adding it on to duloxetine, for instance, in um, chemotherapy-induced neuropathy would be a really interesting trial. Why not head-to-head uh, -head with duloxetine? What? You could do it head-to-head -head against duloxetine. You could. You could do several trials or as an add-on in a failure. Mm -hmm. um, or someone with duloxetine not responding to a randomized placebo versus PEA study. Um, so I think pain is, use, is, is probably the, the thing that I would target. Mm -hmm. So what dose would you use or start at or titrate to for neuropathic pain? Um, it varies. We don't know of a dose response relationship and trials have been between 300 and 1200 milligrams. Uh, I start at 800 uh, and then I'll go up to 1200 with it. It's really relatively inexpensive. It's about 20 bucks or so a month, mm -hmm. 20 or 30 bucks a month. So it's a nice agent to use. Yeah. I think we should put it in public water. What do you think? Yeah. yeah. Well, nice. it, you know, it, it would be interesting it, to look at it from other kind of symptoms that are orphan, like, for instance, dementia, delirium, you know, if it has a reduction in neuroinflammation, maybe it'll modulate delirium. Mm -hmm. you know, there's no reason why you couldn't really look at it in a, you know, at least as an exploratory trial in that sense. Certainly evidence of Alzheimer's uh, in animal models. So, you know, and it has worked as an antidepressant. Um, so I think the other area that is rich for research is all those CNS disorders, uh, whether they're inflammatory degenerative, such as Parkinson's disease, um, would be worth looking at. Yeah. So we should hurry up and buy our supply from Amazon now before Big Pharma gets a hold of this and then we can't afford it anymore, right? <laughs> Never know. That's true. Um, Connie, I think what we've seen here is an example of looking ahead in palliative care with research and all the things that Dr. Davis has been involved in. What are your thoughts on that? What, what are the implications for our students? 
Well, I think for our students of, um, again, you know, thinking about palliative care, and I think Dr. Um, Dr. Davis, you kind of really focused in on some of this research and pharmacology, which we didn't really know about in general and sort of thinking about how to focus on it. And yet you've also spoken to um, thinking about, you know, what are some of the things that are going on in other um, types of care, other you know, conditions that we can bring in because otherwise we're just kind of refiltering what we have. So I think being curious again about the data, paying attention to what's going on in the larger scheme of things. Um, I think the other part is sort of thinking about the language. Um, I think, you know, I, I, as I listen to you and Lynn, you're talking a different kind of pharmacology language that some people may or may not be comfortable with, but I think we have to gain some knowledge in um, how to uh, evaluate some of the studies and how to interpret them. Um, because I think the one thing that, you know, we didn't, kind of hit upon is that um, by the nature of uh, the population that we serve in hospice and palliative care, we usually don't have large randomized samples um, and the follow-up for some of these patients may be really short, right? So we usually have very small sample sizes and um, they might be regional. And so I wonder also if there's some thoughts about that just in terms of what it means to do good palliative care studies. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a very good question. I, I think randomized trials are still there, but the population in palliative medicine is certainly heterogeneous. And that adds an element of, of um, you know, of not really knowing, you know, you may target a population, but it's a very broad population. And obviously there's a short survival. So safety definitions in palliative medicine are gonna be different than for instance, in other drug trials that will do, you know, state, uh, phase four studies, long-term studies to see long-term safety. We don't have long-term in generally in our population. So it's the acute safety that we're interested in. I still think that randomized trials are really important, um, you know, as far as evidence. Um, it's uh, observational studies, I think, can complement that. I think to, to neglect observational studies for randomized trials alone is to miss perhaps a subset of patients that actually may respond that you may have missed in the randomized trials. But to accept observational studies alone to the neglect of randomized trials is really poor science. So we may have only observational studies and that's the evidence that we have and we act on that evidence, but we hope to be able to expand that evidence to also look at randomized trials. And yes, small randomized trials can have errors in them and more often err on the positive than the negative side in that regard. But one of the things about small randomized trials is if you could repeat small randomized trials and come up with the same thing, then that's actually much stronger than a p-value of a single trial. You know, the effect size of a single trial will be overwhelmed if it can be repeated by multiple groups and get the same result. It is likely that the effect size will get smaller by repeating the study, but if you get the same results by repeating it, it's much better than significance. So it may be that you have multiple centers of palliative care that are 
as you said, we can't do the large cardiovascular studies or the large, you know, studies, but we could do small randomized trials. And if we're able to repeat them, in other words, coordinated system of repeating those kind of studies, then I think we'll be further ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, certainly a PhD is a research degree, Dr. Davis, but I could see a lot of the students who graduate with this degree, maybe not performing the research, but I see a big role for them interpreting the research. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a real big issue with it, um, is looking at a study, looking at its strengths, looking at its, its um, obviously its weaknesses and biases that are there and being able to interpret that. That's really a very important for any physician reading the literature. Mm -hmm. It's not just reading the bottom line, but looking at how they got to the bottom line. That's really the important part of a study. Absolutely. So in addition to the things we've already mentioned, any other advice for our students as they graduate and move on their career? Read each day at least an hour. I was told when I started in medicine that I should read four articles for each patient I see. Wow. which I couldn't do, but um, I try to read on patients that I see still clinically. Um, and I learn something every time on a, I'm on a clinical rotation, I learn something dramatically new because patients are the best teachers. So if you listen to patients, they'll tell you what's working and what isn't working. If you listen closely, you'll know whether it's working or not working. Hmm. Well, if they just read one of your papers every day for the rest of their career, that should last them a good 40, 50 years, don't you think? Connie, anything last from you? No, I just uh, thank you for kind of sharing this interesting part, because I think people coming in um, may think that you know, all of this was sort of established over the last decade and they don't understand that the science and research into the medications has been going on for 60 years um, and what we were working with. And um, I, I think it's just so interesting to um, think about some of the challenges of research, of thinking about medications, thinking about um, you know, Lynn, you were joking about access, but what happens, you know, with some of these medications as patents wear out and, you know, we're trying to think about cost containment. And then the last part of, you know, with our science, and then we have to justify it to insurance companies to get them paid for. And, you know, they, the level that you're talking at, Dr. Davis, sometimes we're getting somebody who's doing a prior auth who has no knowledge for us even to talk to. And so it's just kind of interesting about how do we have to both read, interpret, and then be able to communicate. Yeah. We're still trying to convince people that IV to oral hydromorphone is not five to one based on 1987 data, right, Dr. Davis? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I, I um, my life is so much richer because of you. And I really, really appreciate you. So thank, thank you so much. Uh -huh. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, 
PhD, and graduate certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.